We would like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Preborn. When a mother meets her baby on an ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection. And the majority of the time, she will choose life. But she can't do it without our help. Preborn needs us, the pro-life community, to come alongside her. One ultrasound is just $28. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby or visit preborn.com. Jenna Ellis in the morning on American Family Radio. I love talking about the things of God because of truth and the biblical worldview. The U.S. Constitution obligates our government to preserve and protect the rights that our founders recognize come from God, our creator, not our government. I believe that scripture in the Bible is very clear that God is the one that raised up each of you and God has allowed us to be brought here to this specific moment in time. This is Jenna Ellis in the morning. Well, good morning and happy Tuesday morning. And it is November 14th, which means that we are under one year before the presidential election. I know it seems like we have been talking about this nonstop because it's like we're always just in the midst of an election cycle. There can't just be a time where we all go back to just being Americans and uh, actually want to have government function properly. It always has to be very divisive, especially in a presidential primary year. And I feel like this primary in particular has been uh, very unreasonably divisive. And uh, we need to all remember that as Christians and as conservatives, we need to vote our values first and uh, have personalities and Uh, parties and all of that a a very distant second because at the end of the day we should all uh, be Americans and we should all want uh, the best for this country and uh, we'll continue to talk about that over the next year of course Uh, but the interesting thing now that we do need to talk about is not Republican not Democrat but independent and possibly libertarian perhaps Uh, the headline is how RFK Jr. could change the outcome of the 2024 election. So RFK Jr., of course, is running independent. There are uh, some that are speculating that he might run actually as a libertarian so that he has automatic ballot access. I could see that happening uh, for sure. But it's really fascinating here because one of the uh, latest uh, Quinnipiac University polls is that Kennedy actually hit 22% among registered Voters, And this is just registered voters across the board. And even this CNN writer, and and I don't generally quote CNN as a favorable source, but in this particular just factual basis, it's true that the author writes, this struck me as very high. So I went into the polling vault and the last independent presidential candidate to earn over 20 percent support in a poll within a year of the election was Ross Perot. In 1992, he ended up getting 19 percent of the popular vote. And I am actually, believe it or not, old enough to remember that election. I was only eight, but I still remember it because in homeschooling, uh, we that year actually had a a mock presidential style election with our homeschool group. Uh, My older brother and 
another uh, another family friend's uh, kid ran as the candidates and we split into campaigns and did the speeches. Did And, and you know what? Our videos actually, I think, were better <laughs> at, at 8 to, you know, maybe 12 or 13, our little age group, than some of the campaign ads that I've seen out there, like the... Uh, the infamous now Mike Pence uh, f- filling up his truck or just pretending to, and you got like the beeping gas pump in the background. But it, but it was really fun, and I would encourage parents of, of uh, homeschool students out there, if you have um, an age group where you can do a mock presidential election and, and teach kind of hands-on civics, we made signs, we did the whole thing, and you know actually had, but this was like back in the day before phone camera uh, videos, we actually had like the camcorder style and all of that. But I remember then on election night watching this and seeing how Ross Perot was really the spoiler. And it's very possible that Kennedy could pull not just from the Republican side of the ticket, particularly depending on who the nominee is, but also the Democrat side, particularly depending on who the nominee is. So joining me now to break this down more is Adam Creighton. He is a journalist and the Washington correspondent for The Australian. You can follow him on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Adam underscore Creighton. Uh, good morning, Adam. And, you know, this is really high to be polling at 22% a year out from the presidential election. So what do you make of this? Uh, yes, good morning, Jenna. Great to speak to you. Well, yeah, look, it's it's a very impressive showing. I remember when Kennedy first announced he was going to run, first as a Democrat, I think back in April, and the first poll that came out was 10%. And many people were surprised at 10% because that's a pretty solid showing. I mean, it's very, very rare for a third, uh, you know, for a third independent candidate to get above uh, to get above double digits. And, of course, as you say, now there's a series of polls showing him on 22%, which is even higher than Ross Perot got. And there's still a year to go. And the momentum for him is, seemingly at this stage, all in the right direction. I mean, he said, I think, just a few days ago that, uh, that you know, he'd rather be in his position uh, right now than President Biden's. And, you know, I can see uh, to some extent where he's coming from. I mean, the, the, uh, the uh, possibility of him being a libertarian candidate and therefore getting all that ballot access is very intriguing. And that, that, that may well be something he does. Yeah, I, I, I could see that um, not just from the standpoint of ballot access, which I think would probably be the primary consideration, but then a lot of the, the libertarians, um, with capital L, are pretty disaffected by both parties. And I think yeah. that that with uh, Kennedy's platform being very anti-vaccine, very medical freedom, um, having yeah. a really solid stance on immigration, being, um, you know, an attorney himself and and all of the, the things that he stands for in terms of genuinely conservative policy. I mean, obviously, some of the um, the more kind of 1960s, like kind of his his parents and his family's era yeah. of Democrat politics are more liberal, but they're not as extreme a- a- at all as Biden and the Democrats now. And so I could see that base gravitating towards him. And so he would have kind of this um, this swell of support within not only the Libertarian Party, the independents, but also the moderates. And so the real question then is, um, regardless of whether he decides to go Libertarian or just straight up independent, where does he pull the most votes from? Is he more of a threat to the Republicans or to the Democrats, or yeah. does it really depend on who the nominee is from both parties? Yeah, 
No, look, it, you know, it's very, um, it's very amusing watching on Twitter, you know, the debates between Republicans and Democrats <laughs> about who he takes more votes from. And I mean, I think the truth is no one really quite knows. Polls show different things. I mean, my sense is because of the Kennedy name, uh, he will pull more votes from the Democrats ultimately. I mean, sure, there's the vaccine stuff, there's the free speech stuff that, uh, that you just mentioned. He's very strong on those things. And for those two policy reasons, he's often cast as a conservative. But if you actually, uh, kind of read what he, mostly says, I mean, I went to his, his launch in Philadelphia a month or so ago, and it was very much what I would describe as a traditional uh, left-wing speech. I mean, albeit one from the 1960s, but, but you know, it was about, you know, uh, fighting big corporations. It was about pro-choice on abortion. Uh, you know, it was about a peace, an anti-war foreign policy. Um, so it was, it was quite a left-wing speech, I thought, and, and most of the people in the audience who I spoke to were, were former Democrats, not that that necessarily says much, but, but, um, but I think at this stage he pulls more from the Dems, but I think if he goes on a libertarian ticket, uh, then he's going to have to have that word libertarian you know, kind of near his name on the posters, I imagine, and I think that will uh, reduce the Democrat support and probably increase Republican support. Uh, so so that's, you know, that's my take on that. Yeah, that that's actually really fascinating. I'm um, Adam Creighton, who's the Washington correspondent for the Australian. That if he does brand himself as a libertarian, there is an automatic presumption of what that yeah. label means and what policies you are for, even though he doesn't really fit into that label. I mean, for the people that I know that are the staunch libertarians that are almost, you know, government is bad altogether. That's certainly not what Kennedy is projecting in terms of his policies. Yeah. And so he's going to have to consider whether the trade-off is worth it in terms of ballot yeah. access. And if he can either reinvent that term to model his own policies or if he can circumvent it somehow by assuring some of the disaffected Democrats that he still is more liberal in policy. But it's interesting to me, though, that even though he has, um, you mentioned, you know, very pro-choice um, in terms of some of that policy, which, of course, conservatives would reject, that he's actually getting yes. cast as a conservative, which is completely not true. And I think this is where labels in all of yes. this really fail. Because you can't just, I mean, like people want to put Elon Musk into the conservative box. He's not. He's not a conservative. I know. No, it's absurd. Well, look, I think that's because, you know, a good 80 to 90 percent of the mainstream media is extremely pro-Democrat. I mean, that's just institutionally uh, the way it is now, sadly, I would say, in my view, but that's a fact. And so they label people conservative or right-wing when they don't like them. And they don't like RFK. In fact, I would argue they have... They've been meaner to RFK at this point in the cycle than they were to Trump back in 2015, uh, because he's a greater threat. RFK is a greater threat to the establishment, in my view. He uh, he puts forward a more cogent and coherent, and I would say eloquent case than uh, than Trump did, and he's quite specific about what he wants to attack in the uh, say the health regulation area in relation to vaccines. Uh, you know, and these, these policy views of RFK really worry the establishment. You know, if you're on the FBI and the CIA, you'd be thinking, God, we do not want this guy to get in because, you know, he may try to do what his uncle wanted to do, which, um, which at least in relation to the CIA, it was to smash it into a thousand pieces, quote unquote. So, so the establishment is uh, very wary of him. And I think the biggest problem for RFK is uh, not his polling, not his appeal. I mean, it shows that he's very well liked. It's that the number of attack stories 
are just going to increase and get more and more vicious, I think, over the next you know six months. I mean, they're going to want him to drop out. So they're going to be digging over his private life, his personal life. They're going to find all sorts of things. I mean, he's a 69-year-old man. I'm sure he's, you know, he's done bad things in the past. I mean, many people have, but they're going to be, uh, they're going to be blown up and put on the stage. Um, so I think that's the problem for him. Yeah, and, and there's already a, a piece in, I think it was the Daily Mail, um, which you know, wouldn't surprise me from that outlet, but, you know, that was that was just this lengthy piece about how he's, you know, this adultering philanderer and all this yeah. other stuff about yep. his personal life and, and, and just all of that, and um, w- which really, frankly, um, shouldn't bother the, the Trump supporters <laughs> in terms of voting, yeah. <laughs> voting values. And, I mean, that's what they tried to do to Donald Trump. And, you know, that's when right. I supported him in 2016 and even 2020 it was because of his policy platform i never said and yes. never advocated for anything in his personal life that was yes. that that was okay and never said that that was fine but just said you know we're voting for the policies not necessarily the personality which now is much more complicated i think going into 2024 because the personality made the policy in the trump administration and the personnel decisions and you know a lot of those things um, but interestingly as well, you know, you mentioned the establishment and how they're, uh, they really don't want RFK to succeed. And I think that's that's the uniparty. I mean, both sides, but especially the yeah, Democrats. Very much. Um, so if he actually gets – and one of the reasons that, that I like Kennedy a lot is because of that. And I think that more so than a Republican, if he actually won the presidency – that would bode very well in the next midterms and probably the next presidential election for Republicans down ticket, much more than, say, a yes. next term of that's Donald Trump. True. I think that's true. I mean, that's that's certainly acceptable. I mean, for me, of course, I don't vote. I'm a foreigner. But I mean, but if I could vote, I would vote for RFK. I mean, I think he'd, you know, he'd he'd try to unify this extremely divided country. And I think a Biden-Trump rematch is just going to, you know, basically worsen this uh, deep wound that, uh, you know, that's been getting worse in the U.S. now for years. Uh, you know, he's, he's a gentleman. He doesn't uh, resort, to, uh, resort to abuse of the other side, uh, whether Republican or Democrat. Um, you know, he's very eloquent. And I think with that name Kennedy, that would be, a, you know, an opportunity for this nation to, to, you know, to be a bit nostalgic, I guess, and to, and to try one more time. <laughs> Actually, just, uh, just, uh, just on that note, I think it's pretty outrageous the president has not given him Secret Service protection. Uh, I yes. mean, I think Barack Obama got it 500 days out. Uh, Ted Kennedy in 1980 got it 400 days out. You know, well, we're, you know, we're under 360 days and RFK is at 22% and the administration refuses... Uh, to give him any Secret Service protection, and his house has been invaded twice, I understand. Um, yeah, which just shows that the Biden administration and the Democrats want to basically ignore him, and they don't want to um, essentially verify his candidacy as being that significant by giving him Secret Service protection, which is just a, a basic respect factor for the protection of the candidate and their family. So I agree that that's outrageous, but we'll continue to talk about this more, and I think that we can't just dismiss the RFK factor in talking about just the Democrat and the Republican primary and those uh, nominations in terms of the debates and all of that, because RFK is going to be a big presence in this election, whether we like it or not. I personally like it. So we'll be right back with more here on Jenna Ellis in the morning. And thanks so much to Adam Crichton. Follow him, Adam underscore Crichton on X.
We want to welcome a new sponsor to American Family Radio, and I hope you give them your full support, and that's Christian Healthcare Ministries, chministries.org. If you're like most of us, you're feeling the strain of rising healthcare costs. Well, good news, Christian Healthcare Ministries may be the answer you're looking for. CHM is an affordable, faith-based option to traditional healthcare that provides members the freedom to choose doctors without worrying about networks or waiting periods since they are not insurance. Can you say freedom? CHM is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry and has been around for over 40 years, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. They are tried and true and have members in all 50 states and around the world and have covered billions in medical bills. Members not only get advantages from the affordability, flexibility, and reliability of CHM, but they also receive access to 24-7 telehealth services at no additional cost. It's no surprise that doctors across the country appreciate working with CHM, and so will you. Make the switch today by visiting chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And we are under 365 days until the 2024 presidential election. And, you know, it seems like it should be closer than that because we've been talking about the presidential election basically since the last presidential election. And we're still continuing to talk about all of that. And it seems like we can never as a country just move out of an election cycle. But it is important to talk about uh, all of the elections, including midterms, including off years like uh, the one that we just had last week and um, some of those really difficult losses in Ohio and Kentucky in particular for conservatives. Um, So looking ahead at the conservative nomination, which generally speaking is the Republican Party, um, that the, the field is narrowing. And so we have Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina, who is the most recent candidate to drop out and tighten that field. Uh, what does that portend in terms of his support? And he wasn't pulling, you know, really high. Um, I like Senator Scott. I think he's a very solid, sincere Christian. Um, I think he's great. I, I didn't think he ever had a real genuine shot at the nomination. Um, but he chose to run. And this is, you know, a free and fair election and in terms of uh, the, the primary and in terms of who can run. And so it's open and he chose to run. But he got out to me a little bit sooner than I anticipated just because I expected him and Nikki Haley to kind of make a run at their home state of South Carolina. So does his base go to Nikki Haley? Does it go more to Ron DeSantis or to the at least the polling front runner of Donald Trump? Uh, joining me now to talk more about that and local politics in South Carolina is South Carolina State Senator Josh Kimbrell. And Josh, good morning. Um, so what do you make of Senator Scott dropping out of the race and where his support now, particularly in South Carolina, but also nationally, uh, is going to go? Well, good morning, Jenna. Good to be with you. I, look, I agree with you. I thought he dropped out faster than I expected, earlier than I expected. But I, I will say that I think that uh, most of the people who supported Senator Scott, because I've talked to uh, a lot of his supporters, and, and I love I love the guy personally, Senator Scott, and I know each other, and I consider him a friend. But I, I early endorsed Governor Ron DeSantis. I was the first guy in this state to endorse Governor of Florida because I feel like he's the strongest conservative alternative to Donald Trump and the I think it's either a Trump or DeSantis nomination at this point. I think it was true before. It's more so now. 
And, and most of the people, whether they're elected officials or pri- just primary voters in the state uh, who supported Senator Scott, are far more likely to gravitate now toward Governor DeSantis than former Governor Haley. Yeah, and, and I think that that's, that's accurate. And certainly uh, with the projections from the Trump camp, um, Donald Trump seemed to be more happy that there was a larger field because of the split of the support for Governor DeSantis. And I agree with you. I think it really is and has been a two-man race. Um, Certainly, Vivek Ramaswamy is getting a lot of airtime. He's saying a lot of really good things. Um, I don't think that um, he will end up with a, a serious shot at the nomination um, but I think it's great that he's running, especially in my generation as, as a millennial. Um, but also for Governor Haley, um, while she has a lot of strong support, uh, I don't see her being a, a real top contender either. And so from um, from the perspective of the split, uh, where do you see now the, the candidates that are left in the race, and particularly Nikki Haley, I think as the one that is viewed as probably the strongest second to a Governor DeSantis? Well, look, I mean, I'm a millennial as well. Actually, I'm the youngest member of the South Carolina Senate. I'm about to be 39, so I can relate to the wanting younger candidates. And look, Governor DeSantis is an, an, of our generation also. He's still talking about the, one of the younger governors in the country who's able to energize conservative voters. I, I believe that uh, ultimately most conservatives who want to win in 2024, which I hope all of us do, they're going to go for the guy who can win, and I think that's DeSantis. He's proven he could flip a state that was purple, uh, deep red. Governor Haley's problem is he hasn't really supported social conservative movement. Now, I believe in being across the board fiscal, social, and a national security conservative. And while the former governor has uh, certain credentials as it pertains to being ambassador to the United Nations, and I, I don't take that away from her, but Governor DeSantis has been strong on, on pro-Israel issues and supporting uh, our closest ally in the Middle East, if we want to talk about international relations. But then when you get into pro-life and talking about defending life, Governor DeSantis is certainly much closer to the conservative and evangelical voters than, on those issues than former Governor Haley. And I, and I do believe that at this point the, the race does start to consolidate down. And I, and I think that in South Carolina you will see most people uh, going over to, to, the, to Governor Florida. We, we now have the highest number of endorsements of any candidate in the race, any candidate, including Trump, in South Carolina for DeSantis. I think he's up to 56 people in this state. Uh, my colleagues in the Senate, House members, uh, top members of Congress, we got across the board, we have a huge amount of support for Governor DeSantis here. And I think that uh, it's pretty telling that Senator Scott did not endorse Nikki Haley when he dropped out. I think a lot of people thought he might. There's a complicated history there with those two. And uh, she's been very – former governor has been pretty critical of Senator Scott running as if somehow she put him where he was, and she tried to make it look like, you know, you're here because of me, Senator. And he obviously respectfully disagreed, and I think he has every right to respectfully disagree. He's been elected multiple times since he was appointed to the seat. And I think that he didn't – his not endorsing her speaks volumes, actually. And I think that in Iowa, you see the race narrowing down. I, I really believe Governor DeSantis will win in Iowa. And I think here now that Senator Scott's out, you may see a consolidation here that that, that bumps uh, DeSantis firmly back into a second place. And I think if he wins Iowa, which I expect that he will, I think that reshuffles the entire dynamic of the race, uh, where by the time you get to the South Carolina primary several weeks after that, he could very well win here. Yeah, and, and that's a really fascinating um, on-the-ground perspective because we've heard so much about 
uh, Governor DeSantis's ground game in Iowa and how he is positioned uh, likely to win Iowa. And uh, and then you look at the 2016, the last open Republican primary and how Donald Trump didn't win Iowa. Um, Senator Ted Cruz did and how ultimately that didn't matter for the nomination. So a lot of the Trump supporters are saying, well, he can give up Iowa and it doesn't necessarily matter. But in terms of the momentum and the endorsements in other states and especially a very important and early states like South Carolina, uh, that is really fascinating. And so uh, so how much then in terms of, of the Nikki Haley factor do you think will uh, perhaps upset the uh, sort of two-man race if we get it down to, to Trump and DeSantis outside of South Carolina? Well, look, I believe that the only state in the early primary states that Governor Haley could potentially win would be New Hampshire if if she's going to win any of them. But I, I, I believe that's because it's more moderate. But look, you've also seen Governor Sununu be pretty uh, flirtatious with seemingly getting ready to maybe endorse the governor, governor DeSantis. I think that's possible. And that could. And Sununu is very popular in New Hampshire, so that could happen. I, Nikki Haley will not win here. She's not going to win in South Carolina. So, And I think people outside the state have a hard time understanding that. But she really abandoned South Carolina for quite – after she left the governor's office, she wasn't really – in touch with anybody here, you've, you've seen most legislators, uh, I don't maybe two legislators have endorsed her candidacy, two, and she was the governor. So that's pretty interesting. I think people who, who view that South Carolina is going to go to Haley, that's just not going to happen. Uh, DeSantis is, uh, in my view, more popular here. There's one CNN outlier poll that tries to make it look like Nikki Haley's a big contender in South Carolina and other states, and that she might be in second place here. I don't believe that poll because, for starters, it, it was conducted by CNN. And when you look at the, the metrics, the cross-sections of the poll, 37% of the respondents, and what was supposedly a Republican primary voter poll, 37% said they approved of Joe Biden. Well, I can promise you this. You know, there's not 37% of Republicans in South Carolina who approve of Joe Biden. There's not 37% of the people in the state generally, whether they're a Republican primary voter or not, who approve of Joe Biden. So. You have to throw that poll out. That poll is irrelevant. I mean, if, they, if they're going to say Nikki Haley's in second place, but, oh, by the way, Joe Biden's sitting at 37% of Republican primary voters, and that poll is worth the paper it's printed on. So I, I believe you're going to see – yeah, the Trump campaign is going to say that about Iowa. Oh, we can write it off. It doesn't matter. It didn't necessarily matter in 2016, obviously, because you had a huge field of candidates, and it was an open, uh, it was an open field. But he's the former president of the United States, and the fact that the, the most – the highest name ID politician in the country who gets more news time than anybody, who is a former, the most recent nominee of the party, is only at like 40 some odd percent. It's pretty stunning. I mean, think about it. if Reagan ran, because that's my favorite president still. So if Reagan were running, if he could have run for a third term, uh, he would have been at 80, 90 percent in any Republican presidential primary poll, not 40. So people who act like that Trump's inevitable, for starters, you wouldn't, you're not inevitable in the 40s. Secondly, if he loses Iowa when he's supposedly the heir apparent again or he's already been coordinated, then that, that's going to have seismic effects much more than it would in 2016. That's that's a really good point, and I think the the whole inevitability is uh, not accurate for all of the reasons that you just articulated. Uh, South Carolina State Senator Josh Kimbrell, uh, Kimbrell from, of course, uh, South Carolina, and also um, this is why the landscape of state level politics I think is so much more important 
than looking at kind of the national conversation because you're right most of the national mainstream media think that it's just a given that South Carolina is going to go to Nikki Haley because she's from there and that's her home state meanwhile they're suggesting that Governor DeSantis won't win his his home state of Florida which which I think is hilarious because I live in Florida and the absolute love of Governor DeSantis here is is very apparent and you have so many people that moved here just because of what he's done in this state and so the national level media um, not only has a bias, they have a narrative that they want to project. And I think that certainly the leftist media, in my opinion, are trying to prop up the 40% of Donald Trump is inevitable because they do want that rematch of Trump versus Biden because they think that Trump won't win the general election. And so they're not actually getting down to the state level discussion and what is actually going on in the states. And it actually surprises me from a, a more of a national perspective that Nikki Haley wouldn't really be a player because um, I don't know that in terms of the local level as you're describing it and this is why it matters to have people who are on the ground who can talk about what's going on in the states and why you know we've had people on the show from Iowa from you know a few of the other opening uh, states that are in play and so um, so do you expect then if if Nikki Haley's campaign is looking at the same landscape in South Carolina that you are, that she would stay in the race and actually lose her home state? Or would she drop out before that if she really believes that she won't win it? Because I've also heard speculation that she got into this race so that she could end up running for governor again, whether or not that's accurate. You know, that's certainly a narrative out in Washington. Well, okay, let's take that last one first. I mean, she's not, she wouldn't get elected governor again. And so not at this point. I mean, and she's already served. uh, She's been elected twice. And we do have a two term limit, though she didn't complete her second term. I I don't think she would win the Republican nomination for governor here right now. So I don't think that's accurate. Um, Look, there's a lot of uh, South Carolina is a complex state politically. I mean, we have we're we're what what I'd call the three legged stool conservatism, fiscal, social, national security. We're all three. Uh, Governor Haley's more in the lane. Of she, she was when she ran for governor, it was during the Tea Party movement, and she was able to capitalize very much on the whole spending issues and the, and the Obamacare and all of that. And she was able to successfully. She's a very gifted speaker. I mean, everybody can see that watching her on the debate stage. She's very gifted in that regard. But she has a consistency problem. I mean, she 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 ran like for example in 2010, said I'm for school choice, but she never did anything on school choice. Uh, she ran, you know, saying when she was governor, she was very strongly pro-life. But now she's basically saying, well, gosh, you know, that's a divisive issue. We kind of need to walk it back. Uh, there's a lot of areas where she's kind of wish flip-flopped quite a bit. And now she's out there being this China hawk. While when she was governor here, she was recruiting Chinese businesses, including one of them is parked right outside the gates to Fort Jackson. And so you, you can't. You can't have it every. You can't have it both ways. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And that's why I think people overestimate. Uh, her support here. I believe that DeSantis is much more consistent on issues, and I think that's why he will do better here. And ultimately, uh, to your other point about her dropping out before the South Carolina primary, you know, I think she's, again, she's very smart. There's no question she's a smart person and very uh, calculated when it comes to political decisions. If she thinks she's not going to win here, she very well may drop out. And that, and that we're only a few months away from that. I mean, you're talking, it's late, it's mid-November, so we're, we got the holidays and then we're into the primary season. I think she stays in in Iowa and New Hampshire, and then I believe if the polls don't dramatically shift in her favor here, which I don't expect they are going to, 
Uh, I would be surprised if she stayed in the race at that point. I mean, I think she would she would likely back out at that point and look for what the next play would be. And she'd I mean, look, she'd be a very attractive ca- cabinet pick for somebody probably. Maybe Governor DeSantis when he's president and the elect can pick her for something. And so, um, so just in the last two minutes or so I have with you, uh, State Senator Josh uh, Kimbrell, so if we actually get the field more narrowed and a Nikki Haley does drop out uh, before South Carolina, um, how does that shape up then in terms of a narrowing field in your view between Trump and DeSantis? Well, it gets us where we already in my mind are, which is Trump and DeSantis. And I think that if Everything comes down to Iowa, though. I mean, the gov- Governor DeSantis is right about that. The guy's look. The guy is a brilliant, brilliant person. I mean, Ron DeSantis is the smartest guy in the race, and he obviously has put all the eggs. People say, "Well, gosh, he's putting all these eggs in the Iowa basket." I get why. Okay, I'm a South Carolina senator who wants him to spend more time in South Carolina, but I understand why he can't right now. If he wins Iowa, as I said at the outset of our discussion today, it changes the political landscape. A lot of people. You have to go back to the Virginia governor's race in the 90s. Remember the Wilder race, like 1994, and or 93, whatever year that was. And people were, were kind of – didn't think that Wilder could win. And uh, there, the polls did not indicate he wouldn't win. But a lot of people secretly were supporting him. And on election day, Wilder became, became governor of Virginia. That was a huge, that was a huge seismic you know, earthquake in, in the Commonwealth. You're going to see that here because a lot of people I talk to – whether it's elected officials or primary voters, they, they're interested in finding somebody other than Trump. They just don't know if anybody can win. And so there's mm. this secret undercurrent of people saying, gosh, if we can see that somebody's actually going to beat Trump, we'll go for him. If DeSantis dethrones Trump in Iowa, the floodgates are going to open at that point. And I think it, it shows viability. It shows that Trump is not inevitable. And I think you're going to see a lot of Republicans go to DeSantis at that point because they, they want to win the race. And Well, Senator, um, thanks so much for your commentary. I had no idea Nikki Haley wasn't doing that well in South Carolina with those endorsements. This is why commentary from the ground, always fascinating. Leisha had found herself in an unplanned pregnancy and wasn't sure what to do. She searched for pregnancy services and found a preborn network clinic where she was counseled, supported, and offered a free ultrasound. After seeing her baby and hearing the heartbeat, she cried. She was certain she would keep her baby forever. Leisha gave birth to a baby girl who is smart, beautiful, and full of life. Often, she visits that same clinic and receives free clothes, diapers, and more. Because of your generous support, Preborn writes 200 stories just like these every day. $28 can be the difference between the life and death of a child. When a mother meets her baby on ultrasound and hears their heartbeat, it's a divine connection and doubles a baby's chance at life. Let's join together and help mothers in crisis choose life. Just dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 baby. Or visit preborn.com. That's preborn.com. All gifts are tax deductible and 100% of your donation goes towards saving babies. Welcome back to Jenna Ellis in the Morning on American Family Radio. Welcome back. And if you missed that last segment and you're listening uh, to this show live, definitely go back and listen to the replay at AFR.net of State Senator from South Carolina, 
Josh Kimbrell. Uh, that to me was one of the more fascinating interviews uh, that, that we've had in a while just because um, he told me something that absolutely would not have expected and, and did not know in terms of the landscape there on the ground of the state of South Carolina. And if you look at the national media and how they are propping up Nikki Haley as a really viable candidate, suggesting she's probably going to run for governor again of South Carolina. I mean, all of that, according to the state senator, uh, just doesn't reflect what's going on on the ground internally in the state level uh, political landscape. And, and this is why it's so important to not just pay attention to national media, but get the perspective of people on the ground. Because anytime that I hear uh, some of the, the national media on um, commentary on you know political races and other things that are state level, um, for example, just my, my former home state of Colorado, I was very involved in local politics there um, w- when I lived there and prior to working uh, for former President Trump. A lot of the commentary just really didn't reflect a lot of the complexity that's going on. And you hear a lot of these people who say, you know, hey, it's, it's more complicated than that. And the state level politics are, are, are more uh, dynamic than what you hear from mainstream media. I think that's accurate because they want to portray that the, the national media wants to portray this perception that it's it's very basic. It is uh, it's very well in hand and they can project the winners of certain states Uh, very easily just based on some of the national pollings and not really taking into account what's going on on the state level. And the fact that Nikki Haley only has like one or two endorsements from state level members to me is just shockingly bad and really does suggest more than any national poll or any of the talking heads on uh, cable news that she really is not doing well in her home state. And we haven't talked a lot about um, Nikki Haley in terms of that level of detail on this program. It's been more, um, you know, what her policy is and how she kind of compares in terms of the conservative analysis and policy on the national stage. But uh, that is fascinating because if she's losing her home state by that much and with the lack of endorsements of members, that really does portend not a strong candidacy and very different from what you hear in the exit commentary from, let's say, last Wednesday's debate when the mainstream media is propping her up as a direct challenger uh, to someone like a Governor DeSantis. And I think that this just get, just does get back down to the bottom line, which is that I do believe and I will still uh, continue to believe heading into uh, the new year and actually the primary cycle that it's going to be a two-person race. Trump is not inevitable, and I think that was a great point by the senator as well, that just the contrast between uh, Reagan in his second term and how he would have been going into a third election, and this is... Uh, President Trump's third uh, election for president, that uh, the 80 percent, I mean, Trump is about is half that. And if you look at how some of those polls, I think, are even inflated, it's not inevitable. And if you look at the ground support for Governor DeSantis and the momentum that he would take out of Iowa, these are going to be the two challengers. And um, again, I really like Vivek uh, Ramaswamy, a lot of what he says. I don't buy what a lot of people say in terms of um, how he's Soros funded and a lot of these other, you know, establishment-y sort of things. Um, 
I do think that he is a very good candidate. I don't think that overall he's necessarily viable in terms of actually winning the nomination. Um, of course, his campaign is, is going to project that, and they should. Uh, but this is going to come down to, to the two-man race. And for those who think that Donald Trump is inevitable, I just don't think that's the case. And there are a lot of people who want the policies of Trump that are wrapped up in significant uh, in a significant record of winning, which is what Governor DeSantis shows in Florida and why a lot of people who are for Donald Trump loved Ron DeSantis until he challenged Trump. And we have to go back to actually seeing that record and looking overall at the best conservative option moving forward, voting our values. And it's also really fascinating, as we talked about at the very beginning of the show, RFK Jr. factor and whether he would take more votes away from Democrats or Republicans. And I said at the outset, I genuinely think that that is going to depend on who the nominee is from the Democrats and the Republicans. If we are in a Trump versus Biden rematch with the RFK Jr. factor, I think he performs a lot better than if we are in, say, a Newsom versus DeSantis with RFK. I think RFK would pull a lot more from Newsom or Biden than he would from a Governor DeSantis. So this is all fascinating, and it should um, fascinate us from just a, a political perspective, but also from a perspective that we have to care about the future of our country and getting uh, people elected in all positions that reflect conservative policy and genuine conservative values and ultimately reflect the biblical worldview of government, uh, which is why we should, as Christians, engage in our civil government. So uh, let's also make sure that we are uh, recognizing that this is the Operation uh, Christmas Childs. Uh, this is the collection week. And so we are sending the good news of Jesus Christ to children around the world through a simple shoebox gift. Every shoebox gift is an opportunity to share about Jesus Christ and God's love. So this is a direct way for you to equip the local church around the world. Operation Christmas Child allows you to pack your shoebox uh, any standard size shoebox, drop it off during the third week of November. That is right now, November 13th, which was yesterday through the 20th. Shoebox will be, shoeboxes will be collected across the country at more than 4,500 drop-off locations. You can find that and also suggestions of what to pack in your shoeboxes at SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. That's SamaritansPurse.org slash OCC. And another uh, really great organization to support in the context of Veterans Day that we just uh, memorialized this past weekend. And um, thank you so much to all of the service members um, who are listening and for the family members of service members. Um, my aunt has been one of those. My, my uncle um, is now retired, but he served in the army and did um, several tours in Afghanistan. And I know um, how much she sacrificed as a family member as well, just supporting um, her husband in terms of uh, his ability to serve the country. So thank you to all of our service members as we commemorate uh, Veterans Day. And uh, Jeremy Stalnecker is the director of the Mighty Oaks Warriors program and the author and um, host of Salem Media's The Situation Report. And Jeremy, uh, we had you on ahead of your 22 in uh, for 22 challenge. And uh, what is the status update on that? And how can people support the Mighty Oaks Foundation? 
Well, thank you, Jenna. Thanks for uh, coming back around. Yeah, at the beginning, it's one thing to say you'll run 22 marathons in a row, but I wasn't even confident it would <laughs> it would happen. <laughs> but uh, yeah, as of this weekend, um, starting October 21st, I ran a marathon a day for 22 days and finished on Saturday. Um, man, what an awesome experience. A lot of people joining, doing their own thing, and really working to talk about the veteran suicide uh, issues that you know we've discussed often but beyond that, to point to a solution. And so very good to be home and to be on the other side of that, but it was quite a, quite a thing. That, that is quite a thing, and congratulations <laughs> on that accomplishment. I cannot even comprehend that. Um, the last time that, that we spoke ahead of uh, the, the start of this, um, I, I had told you and, and my listeners, I've done one full marathon in my life, and it took me like a month to recover. There is no way the next morning I could think about getting up and doing another 21 of them. So that is uh, really incredible. Um, and, and how has this really benefited um, this this spotlight on the, uh, the the Mighty Oaks Warriors program in terms of um, getting help to veterans that they really need and sharing the truth of the message of the gospel of Christ? A lot of people don't, and even well-meaning people, wonderful people that support our veterans, don't understand the issue around specifically veteran suicide. And so Going into this challenge, the idea was we'll do something big enough. It will get attention from folks that are watching, that are paying attention, again, that do care, but that don't understand. And we'll have a platform to talk about that. And beyond just talking about the problem, talk about how through the Mighty Oaks Foundation for years, we have pointed men and women to the hope and purpose found in Jesus Christ. And it's been unbelievable. I've had so many incredible conversations with people that, understand this issue, had never heard of the Mighty Oaks Foundation, heard about, uh, you know, some crazy guy that's doing something that seems uh, insane, although many people have done bigger things, but um, it's it's been fantastic just to draw attention to that and create conversations and point so many to the great work that we've been doing for uh, 12 years now. Yeah, and you can support uh, the Mighty Oaks programs at Mighty Oaks Programs. Oaks and programs are plural, so mightyoaksprograms.org, and that is the Mighty Oaks Foundation. And um, I love the emphasis that you have, uh, Jeremy Stalnecker, on the the truth and the hope that we have in Christ, because so many other mm. programs in in terms of you know government funded assistance or even secular counseling or other things will just give people tools to deal with yeah. their their issues and their fear and their trauma uh, and and it's almost like you have to live with this your whole life and you are you are damaged yeah. and maybe permanently damaged rather than the truth of the gospel which is that you have hope in Jesus Christ and none of that is your identity, no matter what has happened to you or even life choices that you've made that have been disastrous or wrong or sinful and evil even. Um, We have renewal and restoration completely in Christ. And that is such a different message than what you hear from any other program that is not specifically Christian. And how has that encouraged veterans that they don't just have to deal with the consequences of the trauma that they faced um, during their tours, but that they actually can live an abundant life in Christ. That's, I mean, it's absolutely essential. There are great programs. There are so many other treatments and things that we could talk about, but the problem, and you know this, and 
you know, somebody listening would know this. If you don't have the right foundation, that is a spiritual foundation that is based upon our relationship with God through Christ. If you don't have that foundation, then everything else eventually falls short. And so when we talk about things like post-traumatic stress, and we throw that D on the end, right, that post-traumatic stress disorder, we communicate that we can help you, but you'll never recover. You're disordered or broken. And what we strive to communicate is that there is a new creation in Christ. We are a, a brand new creation that God continues to have hope for us and purpose and direction for our lives. You're not broken, but you need to establish that foundation that you can build your life on. And that changes everything. It changes the conversation. It changes the perspective, the outlook, and ultimately the hope of a person who's struggling. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And 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 of course it does because it it ultimately is or seems like it's hopeless if the if you're being told by professionals, for example, that yeah. well, this is a disorder, this is something that you will never recover from. You just have to yep. give tools to learn how to manage it. That is so much That's more true. of a of a difficult prospect of learning how to manage something rather than actually overcoming it. And so for people who are listening, maybe they are veterans themselves that um, that need to find this hope or they have a family member who is not yet saved, um, how can they participate in this program? Or if uh, a listener just w- it loves what you're doing and wants to support uh, the Mighty Oaks Warriors program. The very best way is to go to that website that you mentioned a minute ago, mightyoaksprograms.org, and there there are a few things that can be found. One, tons of videos, testimonials, people telling their stories, but maybe the most important thing, there is on our homepage an application button. And if someone applies there, they will be um, put into a queue. Our folks will get back to them. There's no cost for our program. There's no cost for travel. We cover everything. So for the person who's struggling, the person who's asking questions, that's where they need to start. And for a family member, uh, the website's a great place. It has a number of resources, again, as well as a program that they can encourage the people they know and love and care for who are struggling to go and check out. So that's a great place to, to start for sure. And Jeremy Stolnecker, um, as well, uh, how often do you do these programs if somebody's looking um, at, at potentially um, asking a family member or uh, themselves participating in this? How often do you have the um, – I think it's, it's a two-week thing. Is that correct? It, it's a, it's a one-week program, and one. so okay. it's five days, which is very accessible. As I mentioned, we pay for the program. We pay for travel, so – Someone attending, all they need to do is get that five days off. And, uh, yeah, great question. Every single week, just about, we have a program going on. Uh, this year, uh, 23, we'll have 35 weeks of sessions. Next year, wow. we'll have 40, so we're continuing to expand. We have five locations across the country. And so for someone who is is looking at this saying, I'd like to do this, but maybe I'm working full-time, or I've got you know childcare issues or whatever, my schedule's not that flexible, Please fill out an application. Let us help you work through that. There are plenty of opportunities, and we'll do everything we can to make that happen. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your testimony to the truth of the gospel of Christ. Go to mightyoaksprograms.org and also go to samaritanspurse.org slash OCC to be part of Operation Christmas Child. Tis the season to spread the love and truth of Christ, our risen Lord. You can always reach me and my team, Jenna at AFR.net.
The views and opinions expressed in this broadcast may not necessarily reflect those of the American Family Association or American Family Radio. I want to thank my sponsors, Preborn and Christian Healthcare Ministries. Preborn Network Clinics have rescued over 200,000 babies from abortion, and every day they save 200 babies' lives. But they can't do it without our help. Will you head over to preborn.com slash AFR and sponsor an ultrasound? Christian Healthcare Ministries is the longest serving health cost sharing ministry, helping Christians pay for and pray for one another's medical bills. Make the switch today and start saving. Visit chministries.org slash AFR. That's chministries.org slash AFR.